Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I've got another podcast for you about global pandemics now. I apologize for this fairly predictably relevant barrage of uh, virology history, but I do think it's pretty fascinating this time. We've had a great response to it, and, and I hope you'll forgive me for putting more experts on talking about the history of pandemics, our response to them, and what they tend to mean for societies after uh, the crisis. This episode features Douglas Gill. You heard Professor John Oxford a few weeks ago. It's one of our most listened to ever podcasts on the 1918 influenza pandemic. He works alongside a military historian, Douglas Gill, who's gone back through the military records, the medical records in particular, in fact, of the doctors serving in uniform in 1916, 17, 18. He's tried to identify where so-called Spanish influenza broke out. He's pretty sure that he has found the first few patients the autopsies that were carried out when doctors realised a particularly virulent strain of influenza that at that stage didn't had huge lethality but low transmittability, if that's the right expression, um, in a huge military hospital at a Tapla with troops drawn from all over the world to fight uh, in the British Empire's effort during the First World War. In this podcast, I talk to Douglas Gill and ask him about his work trying to hunt down the first few patients of a global pandemic that would kill tens of millions of people. Um, I hope everyone is enjoying the YouTube live streams, the History Hit Live on YouTube. It's great. Uh, it's been it's been great doing it. We're getting good response from teachers and students all over the world. I hope they're of interest to other people as well. If you head over to Timeline, Timeline is the YouTube's biggest history channel. If you head over to Timeline, uh, then you will find uh, Dan Snow's History Hit Lives on there. Uh, we're going to be doing three of those a week. They go out at four o'clock UK time every Monday, Wednesday and Friday live. Please tell us what historians and what subjects you would like us to have on there. You can also go for some serious history hit TV channel. It's like Netflix for history. You you enter a code, in this case POD1, P-O-D-1, and you get a month for free. You get that second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. So you get two months, which is going to take us, it'll take us through, well, hopefully a good chunk of this isolation. Two months for just one pound, euro euro or dollar. So please go and check that out. Go to History Hit TV and use the code POD1. In the meantime, everybody, here is Douglas Gill. Douglas, thank you very much for coming on the show. Tell me, you're one of the the, the great experts on the influenza of 1918. This time, everyone was following press reports closely from Wuhan in China. How gradual was the onset? How, how secretive was the initial spread of the, of the great pandemic of, of the end of the First World War? 20 years ago, um, no one really had any idea of the pandemic, save that it sprang up suddenly in various military camps in the US and at various locations, in, possibly in England as well. And there still is a general inclination, particularly in the US, to believe that it began in the, um, among the young doughboys um, recruited for the war and sitting in their barracks in Kansas. But 
That didn't strike virologists as being very sensible. They came to me for the simple reason that they trawled through medical journals running back to the beginning of the war looking for unusual and inexplicable outbreaks of respiratory disease. Uh, outbreaks which, as reported in the medical press, seemed to have no rhyme or reason and didn't fit into uh, bronchitis or um, pneumonia um, or any of the traditional respiratory problems. A man called John Oxford came across an article, a couple of articles in The Lancet which recorded outbreaks of very fatal, but not infectious, not particularly infectious, tragic matters really, because they were afflicting young fit soldiers round about the age of, you know, 18 to sort of 44, in, in, uh, in military camps, either in northern France or in the south of England. Men went down suddenly and inex inexplicably and couldn't be brought back. They went down um, prostrate, exhausted, in sort of locations. They were brought back to the base hospital in, in France. And there the pathologists, three of them at Etape in northern France, which was the biggest, largest concentration of base hospitals in Brit the British army of the day. They were puzzled and alarmed by these, um, by these deaths. Accordingly, in January 1917, it was a very bitter winter, which may or may not be relevant, um, they saw these cases coming off the ambulance trains or falling sick in Etat itself. And they said to themselves, this is, this is something we can't account for. This is not widespread through the armies, but it is knocking men down in a fashion that we've not come across before. So they resolved to put onto the uh, mortuary table every man who, was, who, who died of any disease um, one by one. And so beginning on February the 1st and running right through to the middle of March, every man that died and possibly one woman, they put on the mortuary table, opened them up and looked, looked for signs of this inexplicable respiratory problem. And they logged um, their results. So they ended up doing 156 consecutive um, post-mortems and they were alarmed to find that in 45% in of those cases there were signs of this particular ailment. And it killed obviously mostly in the lungs, in most, from the medical notes, because of course the great thing about the army is that the medical notes are so profoundly detailed. Where they, where they survive, and you've got the hour-by-hour hour temperatures and the Christian's light, heart rate and pulse and breathing um, signs of, you know, improper breathing patterns. You've also got this telltale cyanosis, which is, which is such a feature of the 1918 pandemic. You've got that, and this is the first time that heliotrope cyanosis comes to the fore. It's a discoloration of the jaws, and um, the ears is to do with the lack of oxygen, obviously, coming in the blood. But it, it had a particular cyanosis. It's a, it's a, a sort of scarlety, purpley, reddy colour. And this heliotrope tinge to it um, was widely noted in the main wave of the pandemic in 1918. But it first surfaced at Etap, um, or rather was first, first noted by diligent um, pathologists at Etap in February 1917.
So that's the kind of area that's occupied me, and it seems to be the key to um, how the pandemic emerged. Is it possible to go back any further than February of 17, even if it's just a hunch? I mean, people talk about this pandemic having come across from bats. Was it, was it just the mass of humanity packed in here, immunosuppressed people? How do you think it began? Well, you have this uh, extraordinary concentration at Etat of uh, recruits, uh, soldiers brought in from all parts of the world, Canada. It was, the, it was the, all the infantry for the BEF, British Expeditionary Force, passed through the base camp at Etap. So you had there crammed um, onto, those, um, onto those sort of undulating hills which um, run up eastward from Etap. You had these very extensive uh, network of um, wired off tented encampments and you had in February 1917, you had about 15, 18 base hospitals there. So with the influx of people from the West Indies, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Portuguese, English, Scottish, Irish, the rest of it, there were also people from the United States there because there was a US hospital serving there. You had this intense concentration of young men under the greatest stress um, packed far too many into each tent, and all knowing that uh, within a week or two they'd be, they'd, be sh they'd be moved forward and trained for service at the front. So people say that this is, these are the ideal conditions for the emergence of problems. And also, you'll, you'll bear in mind that this is the route for one of the biggest bird migratory um, paths in the world, because the birds are coming from the um, southern climes, Landing in the Somme Valley, which is a vast estuary, and then um, taking off again for Siberia or, or Scandinavia and the like. So you've got an endless, uh, different times of the year, you've got, you've got millions and millions of wild geese travelling northwards over this area. And if there is to be a pathogen which has an avian source, then it's surely highly likely that there'll be contamination from these wild um, ducks to the domestic um, fowl being sold in the towns around the tap and being bought, because there's pictures in the uh, Imperial War Museum, of the quartermasters buying, buying flocks of geese and the like in the markets. The British authorities, the British medical authorities, clearly were, were, were onto this. Was there a window to stop this? Did they have any chance of isolating it and, and, and defeating it? I would say that uh, they were onto it and they weren't, in the sense that it wasn't particularly contagious at that stage. The fatality rate was higher than it was during the main wave, because in the main wave it was only, you know, two and two, two and a half, three percent. But in at this particular time, those who got sick, a lot of them died, but not many got sick. And you can see the fact that they, that they did post-mortems on 156 men, whose names we now know and whose details we, you know, one can easily look up. Um, you can see that for them, it was very fatal. But, the, but the, British, the authorities weren't worried about it becoming a kind of pandemic and reducing the utility of the British Army. These three pathologists wrote this paper for The Lancet. Um, they did the work in um, February, March. By, the, by, by late March, they decided that the thing had disappeared. They then wrote the paper up. I suspect that it went, then went through the military censorship. Well, it has to. 
and they wouldn't have released it in the Lancet in July 1917 if they'd um, taken the view that this was something which was going to undermine the army. So I, I'm sure that the conclusion must have been by May-June, well, this was an isolated problem, interesting from the point of view of medical history and um, the profession, but of no great threat to the morale of the British Empire. And then, and then is the next upsurge, if you like, is that the famous occurrences in the military base in Kansas? That didn't come till I think it was March 1918. Number 22 General Hospital was entirely staffed by Harvard professionals, physicians, surgeons, and nurses. So one of the 15, 12, 15 hospitals at Etap, running from 1915 onwards, was this so-called Harvard unit. And they were not like British medical personnel who were conscripted or who'd signed for the duration of the war. They were volunteers, and they only signed for six months. So there was a backwards and forwards flow from Etap to the North American ports, because at the end of six months, these civilian Harvard people, their contracts had ended, they were free to go home and carry on with their civil practice in the USA. So this is a possible conduit of free movement backwards and forwards across the Atlantic, which could conceivably have um, seeded the pathogen in the US, bearing in mind that the, the characteristics of the pathogen in 1917 were different to what they were in 1918. And indeed, in the two waves in 1918, they too had slightly different uh, medical characteristics. When does the world, or when does the medics wake up to the fact there is going to be a wave in 1918? I suspect when those people start dying in those US army camps. And how widespread was that initially? It became an important source of uh, illness and death in those, in those US camps. Uh, from March 1918 onwards. And that, that surely has given, given fuel to the idea that it all began in the US. Two things about the pathogen is A, that a Dr. William Rowland, one of the pathologists who did the work at ETAP in February 1917, brought back from ETAP tray loads of slides, old-fashioned glass slides with tissue samples in them. He brought them back and we have them still today. The pathogen was particularly fatal to those centering around the age of 29, and they were afflicted because of this notion of original antigenic sin. You build up immunities because of your exposure to, to pathogens, particularly, should we say, around the time you are born, you pick up immunities from your mother, and then if you're exposed to a particular influenza in your early years and you survive it, then you'll have a lifelong immunity to that. The difficulty was that the, the reason why the death rate was so low for elderly people during the 1918 pandemic and why it was so high for people aged 28, 29, 30 seems to be that the elderly folk, sort of 70 onwards, had been exposed to some influenza which had crossed Europe in the mid part of the 19th century. And that was when they were born, and therefore they had an inbuilt immunity to the H1N1 in 1918. But the people who were aged 28, 29, 30 in 1918 had been born around about the year 1890, 1889. And that was the year when the so-called Russian flu pandemic crossed Europe. 
Their mothers and they themselves as infants had been exposed to that Russian flu. And this original antigenic sin notion, it comes obviously from the, from the theological notion of an original sin. They were born with a strong immunity against the Russian flu, RNA, but they were born with a particular vulnerability to what the H1N1 represented. So they were weakened in, the, in terms of their immune system by having been exposed to the Russian flu. Hence, that unusual pattern, which hasn't occurred in any other pandemic, of young, fit adults, say, aged between, I don't know, 25 and 35, being the first to die in the 1918 pandemic. And of course, that accounts for a lot of the mortality, because they are the ones that are feeding their children and nursing. They're the working adults who provide the income and the support to hold their families together. And when those mothers and fathers start dying in 1918, naturally, society is in, is in a real crisis. Coming back to the military, today we've got the opposite problem, it strikes me. We, we, everybody knew everything about everything from the start. We were all looking at our graphs on Twitter and we were sort of ter terrified it went, uh, because of what was going on at Wuhan. Every single casualty was noted around the world. Back then, presumably, it was completely the opposite. Well, that's the exciting thing about the present pandemic, in my view, is that everyone can see the science from day one. It's so clear, it's so, it's so lucid and transparent. Everyone can see the, how it uh, surface contamination, you know, social distancing. You can, you can see the thing, and you can see the thing crossing the world. So it's the first pandemic in which people are not rushing around with magic cures and rubbing themselves with garlic or, or carrying, you know, the, sacred objects down the street in full, you know, regalia. But obviously in 1918, you, you, you might as well have been facing the Black Death in the Middle Ages, really, mightn't you? Obviously, they, they knew it was respiratory, so they could see that protection might be afforded by masks and the like. They thought it was caused by Haemophilus influenzae, which a German uh, microbiologist had discovered in 1892. But but they were wrong. So when they were looking at the pathogens, they got the wrong one, and they didn't. You know, they, they had no. They had no very few defences other than other than nursing. That's the only thing that got people through: nursing and and luck. Well, we got nursing and luck. We hope this time, plus lots of other tools in the arsenal as well. So thank you, Doug Deal. Thank thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate that. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds 
of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.